to church maybe for years and you have never believed in Jesus Christ. And you might think that you pass our notice, but you don't. We actually do make a study of everybody in the church. Somebody this last week was saying to me that they think that, uh, that uh, in preaching, just the general truth from Scripture is, is what should be aimed at and uh, that we shouldn't preach to particular individuals and then used an example of a time when they were uh, spoken to in a very impolite and rude way um, from the pulpit about a very small thing that it would have been much easier for the preacher to just go to them and say, hey, would you stop doing such and such, right? Well, there are times where it's inappropriate to be personal from a pulpit, but this is not such a time. And I, I plead with you this morning to use Terry as an example of the fact that uh, midlife, old age, young person, Jesus comes to you in this service and he says to you, as he said to those that he walked among when he was alive, he says, come to, to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart and you what? You shall find rest for your soul. For my burden is, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so I ask you this morning whether or not you are a Christian. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you been baptized? Do you come to the Lord's table and are you a member of the church of Jesus Christ? Is this your hope? Is this your faith? It's not an intellectual thing. Um, This last week I was asked to uh, go again on WFHB and talk about creationism in public schools. And I didn't do it. Actually, it's this next week. I haven't answered yet. But I began to think about what I would say. Wait, I just did something. Keep my hand out of my pocket. Um, I began to think about what I would say about the teaching of creationism in the public school. And the first thing I would say is, that science does not have a corner on truth and knowledge. Now, you would immediately say, well, that's true. It doesn't have a corner on truth. But remember, I said knowledge. Science does not have a corner on knowledge. I was, and, and then I was thinking about the fact that a few years ago, I read an article in The New Yorker on facial expressions. And they're studying... The, the, I think there's something like 15,000 or 5,000, give or take 10,000. But, the, but they're putting out this book that is an index of every facial expression that we can, we can make. You know, where one eyebrow goes down and the other up, one, one, they both go up. They both go up with the nose like a little bit, you know, every single one. They chronicle them and then they teach people to read them. And when people are taught to read them, guess what happens? They're able to spot lying like that. And they're not always right, but they're able to spot. And, and the New Yorker at the end of the article said that they believe that this is possibly one of the explanations for what in the past has been referred to as what? Women's intuition. Is it a surprise to anyone that a woman looks at the face of the person speaking to her more than men do? No, that's not surprising to us. A few years before that, I was reading and found that uh, 
In fact, children sometimes do grow one and two inches in a single day. And then in that article, they were talking about how common it was to refer to this as what? An old wives' fable. You know, a mother says, I think he must have grown an inch yesterday. All right. And in fact, growth is often in great spurts. Now, if I had said these things to you 50 years ago, what would you have said? You would have said I was an ignorant fool. You know, that there's any scientific basis for intuition, that there's any basis for a mother saying her child grew an inch yesterday. And so what happened? Well, all of a sudden, science gave legitimacy to our knowledge. And I despise that. I don't despise science. I don't despise knowledge. I despise the thought that the creator of the universe, because he chose through a book to give us knowledge of truth, that cannot be confirmed by scientific experiment, that we sit in judgment on that book and the one who gave it to us and refuse to humble ourselves and receive from that book every good that he has desired to give us. And so again, I say to you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of that book and the truths that it has given us, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of being dependent upon that book for your knowledge of how the world was created? Do you think that it's more important that Stephen Jay Gould looks at you and recognizes you as an intellectual man were he here? Now, I'm just using him as an example of a a well-known evolutionist. Brothers and sisters, every day you come into the house of God, you are given truth from God. And that truth demands a response. If Jesus were standing in front of you and said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you just think of it as a tape that's often repeated by preachers? Or would you hear from him a command that you come to him? Now, Terry has heard that command, and she's come. And so you, child, grown-up, from a non-Christian home, from a Christian home, white, black, red, banana-colored, you have that same command from Jesus Christ. And the question is, have you come? He says, those who come to him, he'll never cast them out. So have you come? Now you think, well, there's the sermon, we're done, let's go home. Actually, I have a little something else for you. (laughs) You won't be surprised. Okay, let's have that something else. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, please. And by the way, one other thing, uh, (laughs) and this won't surprise you either. Some of you have an idol. And for me, it was a woman. Okay? Some of you, it may be a job, it may be a degree, it may be uh, the idol of what your family and your friends think of you. Okay? And, And here's my prayer and my statement to you. May God damn that idol and may he kill it. Okay? 
whatever your idol is, the quicker it dies, the better off for you, because the quicker you're then able to glory in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Moody, I won't quote often, but he says something that's very good, which is that God always finds the thickest wall of our hearts to bash through. Because God brooks no idols. He'll have no competition in our hearts. And I praise God when I think of what happened to cause me to come to Jesus Christ. It was the killing of an idol that had every, every ounce of my heart in its grasp. And that was Mary Lake, all right? This woman, she was my idol. And God ripped her out of my life. And I hope God rips out of your life whatever your idol is, if it's causing you not to come to him or if it's causing you not to grow in him. Because whether it's pride or judgment of others, I don't know what it is. I just know my own heart. And a woman is pretty good for a young man as an idol, right? I won't look at any of you so that you don't think I'm accusing you. (laughs) But, you know, there's only one God. And he's the father of us all. And he is alone worthy of worship. Every human idol uh, will prove to be uh, uh, a rotten thing. Now, I don't mean that Mary Lee is rotten. I'm glad that God gave her back to me without idolatry. And she's a wonderful wife, but she's not God. And nothing is worth trading eternity for. Okay? Especially the respect of your peers at the university. Hmm. All right, back. Galatians chapter 3. We will spend one more Sunday, Lord's Day, in Galatians 3, verse uh, 3, or Galatians chapter 3. And then we'll be done. I want us to read together verses 27 to 29. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now, we last studied this text two months ago, the end of November. Or no, October, I think. And if you look at this text, we avoided it last time, but this time we are going to look at what is probably one of the most controversial verses in all of Scripture today. There's probably been more ink spilled over this verse and more uh, false teaching centered on it than any other verse, at least in the last 20 years. Um, And that verse is, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are many people who view this verse as a sort of uh, biblical EEO warning. The kind of warning that you see posted on the employee's uh, bulletin board at work, you know, that's supposed to, to, to scare management and to comfort Uh, the workers. And these EEO warnings are uh, on the bulletin boards in applications for employment. Uh, They can appear in the real estate section of the Herald Times classified uh, ads. Um, 
And they all come out of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I want to read a little bit from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which, from which we get all these EEO, Equal Employment Opportunity and Other Real Estate Warnings. This is from Section 2000E-2, Section 703. It shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin or to limit, segregate, or classify his employees or applicants for employment in any way which would deprive or tend to deprive any individual or employment opportunities or otherwise adversely affect his status as an employee because of such individuals, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employment agency to fail or refuse to refer for employment or otherwise to discriminate against any individual because of his race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, or to classify or refer for employment any individual on the basis of his race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Now, these laws were enacted in 1964, and so most of us grew up in a country in which we took for granted that a man's race, whether he was a Caucasian or a Hispanic, Semitic or Arabic, that a man's color, whether he was white, black or some shade in between, that a man's religion, whether he was Baptist or Wesleyan or Roman Catholic or Mormon or Russian Orthodox or Muslim, that a man's sex, whether he was a man or a woman or something in between, or that a man's national origin, whether he was Irish or Italian or Somalian, Greek, Indonesian, Korean, or Mongolian, that these things were not to be taken into consideration in such matters as hiring him for a job, accepting him for admission to a college or university, or granting him journeyman status in a union. We as a nation, the United States of America, were founded as a people of refugees, and centuries after our founding, we were not about to allow our nation to forget her heritage, nor were we willing to have the old-timers of our nation oppress the Johnny-come-latelys. It was all for one and one for all, at least in theory, and also in law, as you have just heard me read. And so it is in the church. We are not to separate into two classes those that God has made one class in Christ. We are not Jew and Greek, man and woman, slave and free, nor are we the carnal and the spiritual, the unsanctified and the fully sanctified, the non-speaking in tongues, those not baptized in the Spirit, and those speaking in tongues, the baptized in the Spirit. We are not two people. There are not two levels, not two grades, there are not two classes of Christians in the church. We are what? We are one one in Christ. And the list could go on forever. Whatever condition in life we focus on to raise others above ourselves, and that's a joke, because of course that's never what 
separating people into two groups does. It never raises others above ourselves. It raises ourselves above others. All right. We are never to separate into classes so that we can raise ourselves above other believers. Whether we're trying to do it by age or race or skin color or national citizenship or level of education or theological convictions or length of membership in a particular denomination or church, such distinctions are sinful. When they are used to put down some and lift others up. Now, this is what the Apostle James warned about in his letter in James chapter 2, where he writes this. He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, every time I think of that text, you know what I always think? I always think, well, you know, I don't do that because I've never taken somebody rich and put them in a prominent seat. And there's my cleanness and my righteousness. I focus on the seat, right? But did you notice, and I have to admit, I didn't notice it before last night. Did you notice what it actually talks about in there? What comes before the seat? What comes before the seat is clothing. And boy, we have our fights over clothing in church, don't we? You may not know about them, and praise God, you don't. But I do. And let me tell you, somebody who comes in with dirty clothing is often oppressed in the church. How? Well, the Bible says you judge them with evil motives when you don't give them the same treatment that somebody who comes in in fancy clothes receives. Now, I defy you to tell me you don't do this. I defy you. Do you think that James is writing to something that doesn't exist? You know, it's so nice that Scripture's always written. Jesus always like preaches to people that don't exist. You know, thank God we as a church don't have problems with preferential treatment that we don't judge with evil motives. Thank God I'm sophisticated enough to have been raised as an American and to know that that you, you know it's like. You know, it's all about populism. You know, it's all about the commoner. It's all about democracy. It's all about, you know. Come on, people. You do this. You make your choice as to who you're going to talk to on Sunday morning based on how they're dressed. In fact, you dress based on who you want to have talk to you. Do you know that when I get dressed on Sunday morning, I make a decision about who I'm going to please every Sunday? And this is the reason why I keep fantasizing with wearing a robe. Because I know a robe would please no one. <laughs> and so I take the whole question and throw it out. What is James saying? James is saying that when we come in and we avoid people who are dirty, that we are making ourselves what? Judges with evil motives. And you say, what's that about? Well, what it's about is that we're one in Christ. And when you take what is one and separate it into two, 
A little thing like dirty clothes, clean clothes. Poor clothes, rich clothes. Just a little thing like that. You are judging with evil motives. That's what the text says. I just read it. All right? Listen, my beloved brethren, James continues, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So why would we as a church want rich people? If God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Well, because rich people help us bear the burden of trying to uh, provide for the pastors who are paid by the church, and so it goes. But listen to what James says, and it's the Holy Spirit speaking. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. I'm just reading from the Bible. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, and here's the royal law, you shall, what, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Brothers and sisters, again, I defy you to tell me that this is not a constant sin in your life. I don't care whether you look at yourself as the poorest person here. If you had to choose between, and last night we had an interesting discussion of how many of us would use a towel used by different individuals. This is what we talk about at the Bailey table at dinner time. All right? If somebody else had used a towel before you used it, who would you go ahead and use the towel with and who wouldn't you? All right? Now, let's get a little uncomfortable. Which race would you use the towel with and which wouldn't you? Which continent? Which hemisphere? Which social class? What skin color? You know, Jesus said a similar thing. Jesus said, when you invite people home for dinner, don't invite those who can repay you. And then he told a parable also. And the parable was go out into the highways and byways and find, and, and, and the idea is any old hitchhiker. And then compel them to come in until my house is full. Well, why isn't this house full? This house isn't full because we have become judges with evil motives. We are not content to have entered the house of God, those who have dirty clothes. We want people with clean clothes. But then who do we get in competition with? We get in competition with churches with clean clothes, but we're not going to compete with them. We have become judges with evil motives. We have people over and we dress in a way that completely contradicts James chapter 2 and Galatians 3.28. Because there is to be no partiality in the church of Jesus Christ, whether that partiality is based upon race, skin color, sex, or riches. Such partiality is evil and will be judged by God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Note the word all. All of you who were baptized into Christ are, according to verse 28, one in Christ. 
And a similar confession is made in other places in the New Testament, leading some to think that this may be uh, a, a short statement that was repeated over and again, over again in early church worship, that this was part of their liturgy. In 1 Corinthians 12:13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Colossians 3.11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So union with Christ by faith has not made us into a Jewish church and a Gentile church, a management and a union church, a men's church and a women's church. We are not 2, 4, 6, 8, 10 or 12, but we are one. Now, this is a statement of fact. Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And any one of us who belongs to Christ has the full inheritance of a son and will receive every benefit that God promised our father Abraham. If we have been baptized into Christ, We have by faith clothed ourselves with Christ so that his death has become our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. His righteousness, our righteousness. His family, our family. The family or fatherhood of God. And then we are no longer separated into all the divisions of man that raise some and lower others, leaving the field strewn with the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the ones who matter and the ones who don't matter. But we are all full sons of God living together in perfect equality and unity. But how does this happen? Well, it doesn't happen by civil laws that force us to associate with those we consider ourselves superior to. It doesn't happen by being browbeaten by diversity advocates and city civil rights commissions. It isn't a utopia brought about by the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Commission. As Samuel Johnson said, why, sir, most schemes of political improvement are very laughable things. Universities, cities, states, and nations may try to legislate compassion and equality and to force men to hide their racisms and sexisms, But racism and sexism and all forms of personal and group prejudice, oppression and injustice will only go underground when the law tries to squelch them. It may well be that it's good to have such laws. I leave that for for our rulers to decide and trust their competence in that matter. But we can depend upon it that no matter what effort the government makes to wipe out social prejudice and discrimination, it will be fighting a losing battle. The only place there will be true equality is among those who have been baptized into Christ, who have put on Christ, and who despise anything that threatens the unity and the purity of Christ's bride, the church. Now, this talk is radical and it is revolutionary. Christians are the model for the French Revolution whose motto was liberty, equality, and fraternity. But did the French get what they sought? 
Absolutely not. They, king, they killed King Louis XVI. They killed his wife, Marie Antoinette. And they killed about 15,000 others with the guillotine. And then, a century and a half later, their Vichy government collaborated with Hitler in his massacre of the Jews, deporting 70,000 Jews to Germany. And what of our own United States? The Statue of Liberty has this poem inscribed on her pedestal. Quote, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And what of these United States? Have our own laws fulfilled this glorious vision given to us by Galatians 3.28? And the answer is not at all. Rather, each year, 1,400,000 unborn children who are rightfully our tired, our poor, our huddled masses yearning to breathe free, our own wretched refuse, our homeless tempest-tossed, having been relegated to the status of all most persons by the Supreme Court, are torn from their mother's wombs and murdered. Whatever nation we consider, France, Germany, the Soviet Union, the killing fields of Cambodia, China, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, the legislation of liberty, equality, and fraternity has been a laughable thing. The rock band, The Who, summed it up well with the lyrics of their song, Won't Get Fooled Again. We'll be fighting in the streets with our children at our feet, and the morals that they worship will be gone. And the men who spurred us on sit in judgment of all wrong. They decide, and the shotgun sings the song. I'll tip my hat to the new Constitution, take a bow to the new revolution. Smile and grin at the change all around. Pick up my guitar and play just like yesterday, and then I'll get on my knees and pray we don't get fooled again. The change, it had to come. We knew it all along. We were liberated from the fold, that's all, and the world looks just the same, and history ain't changed, because the banners, they're flown in the next war. I'll tip my hat to the new Constitution, take a bow for the new revolution, smile and grin at the change all around. Pick up my guitar and play, just like yesterday, and then I'll get on my knees and pray we don't get fooled again. No, no. There's nothing in the streets looks any different to me. And the slogans are replaced by the by, and the parting on the left are now the parting on the right, and the beards have all grown longer overnight. I'll tip my hat to the new Constitution, take a bow for the new revolution, smile and grin at the change all around, Pick up my guitar and play, just like yesterday, and then I'll get on my knees and pray we don't get fooled again. Then the long scream. 
And then the final lines, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And that's where the song ends. You could repeat any number of songs that have been done in contemporary music. What about the revolution? It's the same old thing. Meet the new boss is the same boss. But you know something? There is another revolution. And that revolution is called the kingdom of God. And that revolution is read by the only true revolutionary that this world has ever seen. He was the one who taught us to not oppress the poor by becoming poor himself. He was the one who returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. And he closed the book, Jesus, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them what? He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Brothers and sisters, it's not that our nation is wrong to desire a revolution. It's not that it's wrong to desire that each according to his ability, to each according to his need. This was the early church. But remember, the Bible teaches us that it is when we are in Christ that these things happen. Anybody that uses Scripture as a new form of, uh, of, uh, of political economy is a fool because they're trying to change hearts without the Holy Spirit. They're trying to make righteous outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It can't happen. The only way you can have a happy marriage is if you say to your wife at the beginning of every year, Philippians 1 promises that the work that God has begun in my heart, He will bring to completion. I have nothing on my own to give you, dear wife. I only have the promise of God that one day you will see me change because the Holy Spirit indwells me. And that day when we're in the presence of God, I will be complete. I will be holy. You will no longer see the sin that you have to see in me day after day as, as a struggling Christian. This is revolution. This is radical life and living. And so, I ask you whether or not you've gotten with the project. Have you turned away from all the schemes of political improvement that are in this world? Have you turned away from all the, the, the economic theories and, and all the means that we think we have through legislation, through, uh, through code, of enforcing associations that sinful men don't want to do? You know, have you turned aside from all your feelings of superiority at those who struggle with 
uh, same-sex attraction? Have you turned aside from uh, your pride and your wish to raise yourself above people in the Southern Hemisphere, people in France, people who live on the other side of town, people who are in frats, people who are in sororities, people who go to Campus Crusade, people who are Arminians, you know, do you repent of that and do you, do you show in your life that we are one in Christ? Now, about this point, some of you are thinking, well, does this mean that all distinctions are done with? And the answer is no. And this is why this is, a, this is such a conflicted and, and controversial verse. There are many, many people today who say that this verse is teaching us that there ought not to be any difference between slave and free, and that's why we had the Civil War. There ought not to be any difference between Jew and Greek, and that's why Paul had to write Galatians and get rid of all this, these people that said you had to get circumcised to be a Christian. There ought not to be any difference between male and female. But the difference between those three things, I've explained what the sameness is. Status is exactly the same. We are one in Christ. The difference between those three things is one of them happens to be a God-ordained and created distinction. In the Garden of Eden, there weren't Jew and Greek, there weren't slave and free, but there were male and female. And so from the very beginning of the creation of man, he has ordained a distinction. Now anybody that's been married knows that distinction doesn't mean that a husband is better than a wife. But it does mean that the husband is to lead the wife. It doesn't mean that the husband's better than the wife. It does mean that the husband's to lead the wife. It doesn't mean that the husband is better than the wife. It does mean that the husband is to lead the wife. It doesn't mean that the husband is to oppress the wife. It doesn't mean that the wife is supposed to rebel against her husband. But it does mean that the husband is to lead the wife. Now, that's not a complicated thing. 2,000 years of Christians understood it. Why do we have such trouble today? You know, do you really want to become an androgynous being devoid of sexuality? Because, I mean, that's what the Civil War was about. We no longer have slaves and free. That's what the church is about. We no longer have Jew and Greek, right? None of us were circumcised to become Christians. You really want to just sort of flip a coin and decide what sex you're going to marry? Uh-uh. Even those of us that are tempted by same-sex intimacy are not going to all of a sudden say, well, I'm going to embrace my inner demons. No, the Bible says that we're to repent of all sexual sin. And so sex is good when according to God's created order. But does it mean that because God still ordains a distinction between male and female and who we marry and how we live together, that that distinction should permeate the church and we should divide into men and women in the church. No. Does that mean that men should look down on women? No. No, a thousand times no. And in this church, the important thing for us is that we are committed to not using our manhood to oppress and to belittle women. It's almost as if when you fight for the biblical truth, you, you have a tendency to go overboard in that direction and not to love women. But may I remind you that you came from the womb, womb of a woman. 
May I remind you that Eve is your mother. May I remind you that Jesus Christ himself was resident in the womb of a woman. And that forever, if there were any question, has dignified the fairer and, yes, the weaker sex. Galatians 3.28, are we going to live it? Let's pray. Father, we...